Welcome to the Exit Coach Radio Show, the show for baby boomer business owners who are looking for cutting-edge information as they plan their 3- to 10-year business succession and exit. Every week, we interview top professional advisors for their best tips, strategies, and precautions so you can be well-planned. And don't miss our one-minute Exit Coach tip of the day on ExitCoachRadio.com. And now, here's your host, the Exit Coach, Bill Black. Thanks again for joining us. It's a pleasure to have you with us. You know, we we have interviewed so many wonderful guests, uh, advisors, authors, thought leaders, over 750 of them in total. And you can find all of the content at the audio library, which is located at the at ExitCoachRadio.com. There's a button there that you can click on while you're driving, while you're exercising, and listen to 20-minute interviews and one-minute highlights categorized into 12 different categories. So I hope you'll go go look there. It's a great place to go learn about and listen to uh, this concept of preparing for the future of your business and your life. Uh, ExitCoachRadio.com, the audio library. My next guest is Martin Stabas, and Martin is joining us from the Beister Institute uh, in uh, University of California at San Diego. He's the executive director there. And they specialize in um, helping business owners understand the use of ESOPs, employee stock ownership plans, as a means of achieving an ownership transition while keeping the company intact and creating equity incentives for companies. ESOPs are a uniquely attractive exit route uh, from business ownership. They offer a ton of great features and tax benefits. They're not for everybody, but that's what we're going to learn from Martin today is who they are for, who's who's attractive to them, why they're attractive. So let's get right into it. Martin, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks very much, Bill. Pleasure to be with you. Martin, uh, you've been involved with the Beister Institute for quite a while. Tell our listeners about your background and what the Beister Institute is all about. Sure, yeah. Uh, I'll tell you just real briefly my personal background. I, yeah, I've been working in this field for ESOPs for close to 30 years now. I was originally trained as an attorney, had the legal background. I also picked up an MBA along the way, so I have the financial side of it and uh, uh, and actually put in a little bit of time with the, with the Labor Department that sort of regulates all of these ESOPs and ERISA plans, so I've got their perspective. So pretty strong background for this field. Uh, the organization itself, uh, unique stories. It was started originally by a fellow named Bob Beister, uh, hence the name the Beister Institute. Uh, he was the, uh, uh, an entrepreneur, the founder of a company that became very successful, known as SAIC, or Science Applications International, started here in San Diego in 1969. And within 30 years, it was a Fortune 500 company, uh, over 44,000 employees globally, and 7 to $8 billion in annual revenue. Quite a success story. Um, he did that by uh, uh, basically awarding stock to uh, people who were making uh, major contributions to the growth and the value of the company. You know, you, you helped the company increase its value, you got some stock in the company. Uh, and it was uh, obviously a very, very successful model. And uh, people were so interested in how that was working and what he was doing that he, said he decided to set up a little institute to sort of respond to all the inquiries he was getting about uh, how that worked. So that was back in the mid-'80s. Uh, I wasn't part of it at that time, but that's how I understand it. And, uh, and it was an independent group. In 2004, it uh, moved into the, the business school here at UC San Diego, where we've been based uh, since then. It's an interesting collaboration, uh, a university um, and uh, 
and, and an organization that counsels. How, how I'm trying to get my head around how that works and, and what's the benefit of that. Right. Everyone's trying to get their head around how that works. It's part of a, the, uh, the the brave new world of, of higher education where, you know, budgets are tight at the universities and all that sort of thing. Uh, so it's not a traditional thing. We essentially are a, a consulting firm uh, that, that operates out of the university. Uh, part of the terms of the arrangement when uh, we made this move to bring the group into the business school was the school said, you know, we don't have any budget for you, so you're going to have to be what we call a self-supporting entity. So uh, we charge a fee for our, our consulting help that we provide. Uh, but we are still different in the sense that at the end of the day, we're part of the university, which makes us a nonprofit organization. Uh, so we just uh, charge enough to break even. Uh, if we make a profit here, it sort of disappears into the bowels of the university budget somewhere. I don't get to take it home, so no point in charging more than we need to to keep our doors open. Uh, and we do get a lot of uh, indirect uh, kind of support from the university, uh, beginning with free space, which is pretty nice. So our costs are low. So as a result, our, our fees are low. So we, we have a what I think is a, a very high level of expertise here at the university, a lot of very smart people with really strong backgrounds in this stuff. As I say, I've been doing this for 30 years, and we're able to offer that at uh, a, a really a fraction of what we'd really be going for in the, in the full private sector. That's great to know. But the other the other question I had that I guess uh, everyone probably wonders is, does the Beister Institute benefit from research by is it is it a class? Is there a class on ESOPs, and are people researching from the university standpoint, feeding that back to you as well? Exactly. Uh, there's a lot of interest in this. I think a lot of uh, business school academics get interested in, in the idea of an ESOP, uh, both in terms of a, of an exit strategy and also how uh, how effective does it actually motivate employees when you sell stock to an ESOP and stock goes into it goes to it goes to employees. Do they, uh, in fact, actually respond? Do they take their work more seriously? Do they start paying more attention? Uh, and so there's lots of research gets done. People do lots of collecting of data and interviewing and all that kind of stuff and come back with research studies. And, in fact, that research does bear out the fact that employees do respond to that. Companies that have, have ESOPs are actually higher performing, uh, greater productivity, uh, greater profits, faster growth, because all those employees are taking their work a lot more seriously than they used to when they were just employees. So that really helps us in our work. And I actually do a little bit of teaching. I spend about 75% of my time working with companies who are interested in exploring an ESOP and maybe setting one up. But the other 25%, I'm in the classroom with MBA students and, and teaching them about, about this stuff. Well, you can't you can't help but get smarter hanging out with MBA students and listening to you know their thoughts and ideas. But it's uh, what what I'm interested in too is what's the trend uh, with ESOPs? I mean, uh, it's it's been yeah. it gets talked about a lot in my world. It gets yeah. talked about a lot, and then a lot of times business owners go, "It's a little bit too complicated." So we're going to talk about that. But what is yeah. the trend? Are, are more and more companies gravitating to it? And if so, why do you think that is? Absolutely, uh, I, I heard one. Uh, Sort of ESOP expert recently say he feels he feels like uh, a lumberjack in the middle of a Siberian forest. It's uh, so many uh, opportunities to do this, uh, so many companies that are candidates to do this, and it's really a matter of the word getting out. Uh, ESOPs have been around for for almost 40 years now, really, but it was really been sort of a well kept secret for a long time. And as you say, they're just complicated enough that you can't uh, most people at least can't really explain them real short and quickly. So it gets hard to sort of communicate and get the word out there. But I'll tell you, every time I have a conversation with a business owner and I lay it out, this is actually what's involved in how it works, their eyes get wide and they say, I can't believe this. I can't believe I never knew about this before. Some of them say, 
they say, are you sure this is legal? This is, sounds too good. <laughs> Uh, uh-huh. So it's an amazing deal, but the word is getting out increasingly, and, and so we see a, a real upswing. Uh, it's like an acceleration, almost like a snowball effect of the growth in this ESOP activity. That's interesting. And uh, let's start off by talking about what's a, a good size company that you need to be, and how do you measure the size of company before you even start putting an ESOP plan on your radar screen? Right. Uh, well, first of all, the company needs to be uh, – a profitable, you know, successful company. It's, it's, ESOP is not a route to, to, to dump a failing company. Uh, part of the process with an ESOP is that the uh, the, the sale price, what the ESOP is going to pay to buy stock from an owner, is is established by 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 law. The rules require that you bring in an independent professional business appraisal firm, you know, a valuation firm. And they will study the company and assess what it's worth and basically what anybody else would pay for it. What's the market value? If we put this company on the market, put it up for sale, notify the investing world that this company is available to buy, what price do you think it would fetch? And that's the pricing process. And, of course, if the company's failing and struggling, these are smart valuation firms. That's all they do all day long is study companies and what they're worth. They're going to see well, there's no value in this company. It's heading down the tubes. So it's not a way to dump a failing company, but assuming it's profitable and it's doing well, it's going to have value. Um, it's going to be a pretty successful uh, candidate. Size-wise, uh, quick rule of thumb, I would say, is probably a minimum of about $5 million in revenue. Uh, some practitioners would tell you a higher number, and that's really – it's really a function of – the uh, tax benefits that an ESOP provides, which are really uh, prodigious, impressive tax benefits, but of course those tax benefits scale with the size of the company uh, versus the transactional cost of doing this. Uh, now, an ESOP actually is a, a considerably cheaper way to sell a company than conventional sort of an M&A type of transaction where they want 1% or 2% or something of the, of the value. An ESOP is generally going to be less than that, but at some point, even with an ESOP, um, the, the transactional costs may be uh, enough that they're that they're kind of wiping out all the tax benefits from it. So, uh, I'd say for at, at our pricing, which is I say low, uh, we can probably go down as low as about a five million revenue company. Uh, others might say ten or even twenty million, but I think for us five works. Yeah, uh, and five 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 in a like a manufacturing company is very different from five in a service company, depending on your margins and you know what what type of industry and company you're in. So because right. they Ultimately, they, like you said, it has to be well-run and managed and profitable because there's going to be a payback. Exactly. And really what they're, you know, the evaluation firms will protest and say it's really complex and you need three PhDs and all this stuff. But essentially, primarily your, the value of your company is tracking your EBITDA, as they call it, you know, your, your cash-based mm-hmm. profits. Uh, so another, maybe a better rule of thumb than revenue, since it's variable, would be a million-dollar EBITDA. So okay. if you've got that, okay. you're probably going to be a good candidate for an ESOP. That's that's great. Okay, that's a that's a number we can all get our head around. And then uh, one of the things you said is it's the sale price is established by appraisal. And of course, we we preach to a lot of our business owners. We want you to get a a better than um, you know market rate for your business by creating your business as a strategic purchased by a much bigger company in your industry, you know, we, we want to blow the doors off of that three to five times EBITDA formula or whatever it happens to be at that time in that industry. Does, does the ESOP, do you find that ESOP valuations are typically um, pretty standardized by, by, you know, if you take uh, all service companies or all, all architecture companies are going to come into a pretty standardized type of a thing, or do some, does that, that specialization that they've developed 
and that efficiency that they've developed stand out um, like it would if they were purchased by a a, a buyer that's you know really uh, yeah buying them yeah for- right. It's, it's certainly true. Valuation is not a cookie-cutter process. Uh, it's not a, just a simple formula. They're going to factor in a lot of those things. And it's certainly true. An ESOP is no different from any other sales situation in the sense that uh, you're going to get a better price if you really prepare the company for sale. So somebody may have been running a company for 20 years, whatever, and they're comfortable, and it's part of them a nice lifestyle, and they said, this is great. But they, they, their, their financial statements are just thrown together on QuickBooks or something. Uh, they... Uh, their management team is really, uh, you know, not very impressive. There's a lot of things where a buyer's going to come around and say, "I'm not. I can't really tell what you got here." So, an ESOP's going to be no different. The valuation firm is essentially in the shoes of a potential buyer. So, as with any other company, you want to prepare it for sale. You want to get nicely at least reviewed financial statements. You want to have uh, good records to show your profitability. Um, all these things you do to dress up the value of the company are going to be the same in the ESOP context. Now, one factor that is going to impact valuation in the ESOP situation is that with an ESOP, we're by definition talking about the company continuing on uh, as an independent company. You're going to sell stock to an ESOP, and it'll keep going. So what you won't get with an ESOP is what they call the synergistic premium. There are some buyers out there who say, yeah, your company is generating about a million dollars in EBITDA, but if we buy it, uh, we'll be able to cross-sell some of our current products to your new customers and some of your stuff to our new people, and we can strip out a bunch of your costs and you know fire several of your most of your administration. And at the end of the day, uh, we can justify it'll, make, it'll be worth it to us to pay a higher price because of what it's going to yield for us when we combine it. Now, an ESOP won't match that scenario because, as we said, it's going to, the company is going to continue forward on an independent ba- basis, and the price has to be justified based on the kind of earnings that it's going to continue to earn on its own. So you would, you would lose out on this special synergistic premium. However, there's a different benefit you get from the ESOP, and this is money in the bank benefit that you can count on for sure, and that is that with an ESOP, you have the opportunity to sell your company tax-free which is a pretty amazing benefit because today the current rates, if you're in California, you add the state and the federal together, the the, uh, capital gains rates are 37%. So you sell to some other company that's going to offer you a synergistic premium, whatever it is, you're going to lose over a third of your proceeds when it disappears to taxes. When you sell to an ESOP, you can avoid that loss and keep every penny of it. What that means is you actually have a built-in premium of almost 60%. In other words, if you have a company – and uh, it was valued at $10 million for ESOP purposes, some other outfit out there would have to offer you $16 million for your company in order for you to net $10 million after taxes, whereas if the ESOP would offer you $10 million, you get the whole $10 million, you're just as well off. So it's, it's rare to see premiums that big. So in probably majority of the cases, you're actually, amazingly enough, going to end up on an after-tax basis doing better by selling to an ESOP. So there's that reputation out there that ESOPs somehow don't pay as much. Well, on an after-tax basis, they they pay at least as much and often more. Mm-hmm. Okay, and that's that's a good point. Um, the the only uh, concern that I've heard from that is that when you do an ESOP and you do the you do the exchange, your C corp, you exchange and you buy a, a group of marketable securities, right? And that's how you avoid right. the taxes at that point. Someday you're going to sell those securities possibly. And at that time, it's kind of like an IRA account. I've got a million dollars in my IRA account. Well, not so fast 
because someday you're going to have to take that money out, and someday you're going to have to pay the taxes. So it's more of a tax deferral, isn't it? Uh, actually, there's this, the strategy that's used pretty widely these days that really makes it a, a what I call a permanent deferral, where it really isn't just a, a, a temporary deferral. It really does eliminate the taxes completely. And the, the strategy for that, the the, the main uh, the key piece of it is the fact that um, a state tax law has always provided you know when when, when all of us eventually die, uh, any investment assets we have go to our heirs with what they call a stepped up basis. In other words, any gain that took place during our lifetime is just sort of forgiven. It's just wiped out, and it just goes to your kids or your heirs, whatever, and they start fresh, and, the, and nobody pays any taxes, and it's just literally it's just forgiven and not paid. So if you, uh, it certainly is true the conditions for avoiding the taxes when you sell to an ESOP is you take your money, and you're supposed to reinvest it, and you can pick any uh, securities you want to divest it in. You can get a diversified portfolio. You can buy some stocks and bonds, whatever. And uh, you roll your money over, as they say, into these new investments you pick. It's true that if you then sold those investments, you would trigger the taxes. So the object of the game here is let's not sell those things. Uh, but then people say, well, my kids are going to love me for that. But if I have to take all my money and roll over to other investments, what about me? I don't get to go spend the money. Uh, that, that's not, this is not so great. So the solution to that is what people are investing in now is there, there are these particular long-term uh, floating rate bonds that are issued specifically for this market. And what they're designed to do is that they're, they're issued by blue chip companies. They make the best possible collateral that a lender would ever see. So you sell your company for, say, $10 million. You take your $10 million, you, you go to a brokerage and say, I want to buy $10 million of these uh, long-term floating rate bonds. And then I want to open up a margin account, and I can borrow out of that. The brokerages will lend you up to 90% of that money. So you can put your $10 million into these bonds, borrow out $9 million of cash, and that money is now yours to do whatever you want. Uh, the interest you're earning on the $10 million of bonds is just about enough to pay it, the, the, the interest on the, you owe the brokerage on your $9 million loan. And this loan is just basically a permanent loan. It just stays forever. And so you really did pull out 90% of that money uh, tax-free, uh, eventually, when you die, those bonds get a stepped-up basis, and your heirs will unwind all that stuff. And uh, so you would have really, literally, never paid the taxes, and had 90% of that money coming out to do whatever you want with, and the extra 10% went to your family. So it's a pretty good deal. And of course, whenever whenever we bring up taxes, we want to tell you, you know, engage qualified tax professionals. <laughs> it sounds great, and uh, there there are Absolutely. always caveats because. Sometimes that stepped-up basis turns into an estate tax, just depending on your particular situation. But get good tax counsel advice, and it's, these are creative ideas, Martin. I like them a lot. Um, so, so what what holds pe- most people back when they look at this and they go, yeah, it all sounds great, but I thought about it and I don't want to do an ESOP? What do you think holds them back the most? Well, I would say the only the only uh, real uh, bit of a, a downside uh, uh, potentially would be the fact that uh, – you're probably not going to get all your money uh, as quickly sort of up front. I mean, I would say that business owners who have not really explored or been through sort of a business exit, they're often fairly naively hoping that, you know, when they want to sell the company, they'll sort of advertise it and somebody will name a good price and write them a check. Here's your money. And, and you go home. Well, it's never as simple as that. ESOP, non-ESOP, every uh, kind of a deal these days is going to include earnout provisions, those kind of things. And yeah, we said ten million, but what we actually means we're going to give you five million up front, and then the other five you'll get three years from now, if in fact the company grows at thirty-five percent a year, whatever. So right. you never really necessarily get your, all your money right up front. Having said that, with uh, a sale to a big 
you know, a big company or a private equity firm, or whatever, you're probably going to get paid more quickly. With an ESOP, uh, it's going to take a little bit longer. You're going to get paid in installments. Uh, so you may get maybe half the money up front, and then the other half would be paid, up, paid off to you in, in annual installments. So if you had a company that was valued at $10 million, maybe you'll get $5 million up front, and then you'll get like a, a million a year for the next five years, that sort of thing. So if somebody really wants everything right away as soon as possible and go off, then an ESOP won't work as well for them. But if they could say, hey, you know, I can afford to – I get a big chunk up front and I can afford to, to wait for the rest and it's all tax-free, then that's not going to be a problem for you. But that, if it is a problem for you, that's one uh, downside of the ESOP route. Okay. How about situations where I hear like people saying, you know, I went through 2008 and it was really tough, and if I would have had an ESOP then, I don't know if I would have had the cash flow to make debt service. What happens in a scenario like that? Well, it's interesting. You talked. We talked earlier about research that's been, that's been done, and uh, there was research done recently into you know how companies with ESOPs uh, managed during that last pretty 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 awful recession, and it turns out that companies with ESOPs have a substantially better survival rate. That in fact, the the bankruptcy rate of companies with ESOPs during that period was only a quarter of the overall bankruptcy rate. These companies were four times more likely to survive. Uh, because mainly the explanation is that the employees are going to do whatever it takes to keep their company going because it's their company now. They own a big stake in this thing. If they have to take a pay cut for a while, they'll do that. If they have to go out there and hustle and sell more business, um, they're going to do whatever it takes. So um, they actually improve their odds of, of surviving. That's great. So now uh, on the con- on the counter side of that, business owners are saying, and now since 2008, I've finally got it back to even keel, and I see a big growth curve ahead of me. So maybe I should wait wait to do my ESOP until it's worth a lot more. I don't want to leave chips on the table. Are there strategies to, to help them overcome that fear? Right. Uh, there are. Um uh, one of the things, of course, is that, as I mentioned before, with the ESOP scenario, essentially the valuation firm is putting themselves in the shoes of a buyer. So if the uh, if you can make a uh, convincing case, maybe you've got contracts in the book and you can show the valuation firm, look, we've brought in these contracts, we're going to be bringing in tons of revenue and earnings over the next you know, three, five years. And the valuation firm say, yeah, well, that's what we're basing our valuation on is the, what we're anticipating in terms of future performance of the company. If you can't convince the valuation firm, you probably couldn't convince another buyer anyway. Uh, so that's one consideration. But in terms of another strategy for that, uh, it's certainly true that if you actually, rather than you know trying to convince the valuation firm that we're going to have a big year of the next two or three years, going to be great. If you get a, a really good year under your belt, it's, it's a lot easier to, to convince the people. So I do work with owners who say, let me let me put this off for a year and really get that really an actual real year of real performance on the books. Uh, Another one of the great things about an ESOP, one of the, one of the really most compelling things, though, about it, is the fact that it's one of the few ways that you can sell a company in pieces. I mean, anybody else who wants to buy your company, they say, "Sell me your company," or "Don't sell me your company." I don't want to buy 25% of your company or 50% or whatever. With an ESOP, you can do that. So I've had a lot of owners who say, "Yeah, I really think that we're going to be going through some great years coming up ahead." Uh, but on the other hand, I'm you know I'm 60 something and. Uh, you know, I don't know how much longer I personally want to really be working this hard. And maybe what I'll do is I'll take some of that off the table, uh, and that'll do a few things. One is I'll take some of this money, I'll turn it over to my wealth manager, and I'll invest it in nice diversified investments. Uh, and uh, I have a lot more economic security. I don't have to worry quite so much because currently, like a lot of business owners, what 75% of my net worth is this this company. And I'm optimistic about it, but what if something happens? So let me take some chips off the table. 
and and then the other thing that does is by by selling the stock, the stock goes into this ESOP for the employees, and we explain this all to the employees and say, you guys are now shareholders in the company, and it's your company, and uh, if we can help this work together to make this thing grow, that every dollar we grow by its money in your pocket. And so what we see is all that motivation translates into really driving the value of the company. So we say my original plan was today I'm thinking, hey, we could be go from 10 to 15 over the next three or four years. Uh, well, we put in the ESOP, and we go not from 10 to 15. We go from 10 to 18 or 10 to 20 because uh, the employers are just doing that much better of a job. And so, yeah, I'll sell 25 30%. So I take some money off the table now. Uh, just to get that incentive effect and and just to you know reduce my risk, and then I'll sell the rest of it uh, when we get those bigger numbers down the road in another three years. So I see a lot of owners do that too. Okay, and is a company that has has uh, triggered an ESOP or partial ESOP in your experience are they an attractive target for purchase by a, another company down the road? Is 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 that complicate things sure. or does it make it more? Mm-hmm. No, that's a very good question. A lot of owners will ask that to say, if I do this, if I, you know, maybe I'll, you know, my initial plan, I'll sell 25, 30% similar to the ESOP. But what if, you know, a couple of years down the road, I get some incredible offer that's triple what they ever said the company is worth and it's just too good to refuse? Am I going to regret setting up the ESOP? Does that ESOP complicate things terribly? And the answer is no, not really. The ESOP is basically going to sell its stock along with you. So if we had our, our stock, the, the valuation firm said your stock is worth 10 bucks a share. Somebody's offering you 25 bucks a share. Well, the ESOP is, you know, owns whatever 30% of the company. Well, the ESOP will sell its shares for 25 bucks a share. It's a great offer, and they just uh, prosper along with you. I, I call it declaring victory on the for the ESOP. Basically, the employees just instantly, you know, got this giant boost in, uh, you know, what their share was worth. So, so it really doesn't uh, substantially come. But you know, you're gonna there's a Simple you know, stuff the lawyers will take care of. They're going to unwind the ESOP or uh, mm-hmm. change it, amend it to change it into a 401k plan. There's there's some details to, t- to take care of, but it's not a, at all a major impediment by any means. Uh, a couple more questions for you, and uh, one of them, you're doing great, by the way. I'm really it, uh, you're explaining things clearly, and that's what our listeners need to hear is good, solid, clear advice on this. So thank you. Uh, how about when someone's saying, uh, I want to, I really want to lock in and retain a few key employees. Should I put in some kind of a plan to do that before I were to do an ESOP? Because is, does my relationship change as a fiduciary after I start an ESOP, it, you know, or, or my own compensation? Uh, will I have a problem giving myself a bonus or a raise after I've set up an ESOP if I'm the trustee of the ESOP? Uh, right. Yeah, it's certainly true that in general, uh, when you set up, once you set up an ESOP, you're going to be operating the company a little bit more by the book, maybe than you used to. Uh, you're probably not going to be, uh, you know, paying for the family vehicles any longer <laughs> through the company like you used to. Uh, you're going to do things a little more, a little more straight arrow with with the ESOP involved, and so you might want to clean that up. You might have said in the past. You know, I didn't really worry too much about my compensation. I took whatever I decided I needed to take, and, and now you're going to have to, you know, be a little bit more, as I say, by the book, a little more salary. So you want to think about that and plan that and line those things up. Um, if you're selling, uh, you know, 25% or something to the ESOP, then you still got the 75%. So you clearly you have an equity interest in how well it's doing. But it's possible there are owners who sometimes sell 100%, sell the entire thing but don't really necessarily want to exit right away. They'll stick around for a couple of years. And so at that point, they may 
you know, want to negotiate a, a compensation package like you know other executives might have that might include some stock options and that sort of thing. Um, so we often set up those kinds of programs uh, as we're working out an ESOP and doing the planning for an ESOP. We'll say, okay, we're going to have some um, some, pro, some some supplemental uh, equity programs, uh, usually stock options, or it could be, uh, we, for various reasons, we'll use a, a phantom stock program instead for some cases. But either way, there'll be a, a sort of a separate, you know, uh, equity uh, equity compensation sort of program going on for people. So that can be lined up in conjunction with the ESOP. So the bottom line there is there's some pre-planning that should be done to think through some of these issues. And another one that I hear a lot about, because a lot of companies that are set up these days aren't uh, either have uh, uh, they've transformed from a C corporation to an S corporation in contemplation of future sale or for pass through uh, uh, tax treatment or they're an LLC or something like that. But let's just deal with C corps and S corps. If someone is converted to an S corp, they can still be an ESOP, right? An ESOP can be set up in either S corp or the regular C corp. They, They work in either way. There's a few little differences, but they can both have an ESOP. Uh, and with the S, with the S, you don't get the the tax deferral. But for that reason, right. do you see a lot of people convert from S back to C before they become an ESOP? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, a common pattern we'll see, for example, is uh, somebody comes to me, a business owner, and, and wants to explore this ESOP, and they've been operating for an S, S corporation for a long time. And I explain that this ability to be able to sell and avoid the capital gains tax, where we talked about that earlier, how you do that. One catch of that is you have to be a C corporation at the time of the sale. So converting from an S to a C is generally a very, very simple thing. Once again, it's never something you do without consulting with good you know, advisors, uh, CPAs, whatever, on that type of thing. But generally speaking, you just send a little notification to the IRS. Dear IRS, you know, from now on, we're going to be a C corporation. So as soon as you've done that, you're now eligible to sell stock and qualify for that, avoiding the, avoiding the capital gains tax. Now, eventually, there's no waiting, uh, there's no waiting period. There's no waiting. You can literally do it the very next day. Wow. Uh, okay. Now, once you convert to C, you can't switch back to S for five years. There's a five-year wait before you go back. So, but you're probably going to want to end up going back to S. So you'll have this five years. So what, what I see there for is uh, one of the things I always really emphasize is that ESOPs are remarkably flexible. It really allows the first of all the owner's completely in charge of it. They decide when they want to do it. It's so incredible that there's really no adversarial sort of party across the table from you as there is in a conventional sale. Nobody telling you do it this month or I'm walking away or sell me all or nothing. Or, you know the, the owners in the ESOP situation. I'll decide when I want to do it. I'll decide how much I want to sell. And the ESOP just says okay, <laughs> as long as the price is the uh, appraised price. The ESOP will go along with whatever you want to do. So a, a pattern I see that's very popular with owners, I've done with a number of them, that they'll choose to is they'll say, okay, I'm an S corporation now. Okay, here, we're going to go with what I call the five-year plan. So the five-year plan is uh, step one, we're going to convert to a C corporation, and then right away I'm going to sell 50% of my company. And why 50%? If I sell less than that, the appraiser says, oh, that's a minority interest. Anybody out there in the world is going to be less enthusiastic about being in a minority position where they have no control, so they'll, they'll only pay a lower price, and therefore the ESOP will match that. So if you want to get uh, avoid that, what they call a minority interest discount, sell a full 50%, which is not a minority. So they say, okay, great, I'm going to sell 50%. And I'll be, and because we just converted to a C corporation, I'll be able to avoid the taxes. 
over the next five years, we'll stay a C corporation. And during that five years, we're going to do two things we're really focusing on. One is we're paying down this acquisition debt. So if they're making payment, the company's making payments to me for my stock, we're getting, making sure we're getting me paid off. The other thing we're doing is my job as the head of this company is I'm mentoring a successor generation of leadership. So I got young guys in the company. You know, if I got hit by a bus today on the way home, this company would be in big trouble tomorrow. But these guys, with five years of training, if if, uh, if I sort of mentor them and coach them, over each year I'm started handing more and more things off of my plate and delegating to those guys. Maybe by year four, I'm just going to be chairman of the board, not even coming to the office every day. At the, at the end of the fifth year, I'm while well, we're still a C corporation, now I'm going to sell the other half of my stock and once again avoid the taxes. And then literally the next day after that sale, we're now eligible to convert back to S. And it'll be an S corporation. These guys got the things under control. I slip out the back door. They didn't notice I'm gone. And the final piece of this story, which is going to blow people's mind, is that at this point, the company is an S corporation once again. So, of course, it doesn't pay taxes at the corporate level because it's a pass-through entity. Taxes on its profits are normally paid by its owner. When you back to this guy was the owner, he paid all his taxes on the earnings. Well, who owns the company now? The ESOP owns the company now. And ESOP is a tax-exempt qualified plan, so it doesn't pay taxes. So the company doesn't pay taxes on its profits. The owner doesn't pay taxes. Well, who, who pays the taxes on the company profits? And the answer is nobody. So what you have is you have, you have a tax-exempt business. People can say, how could this be legal? How is this possible? It's completely legal. It's completely possible. There are thousands of companies doing this now. These companies operate. At the end of the year, they made a million dollars. And any other company in the world is going to be, in California, rates is going to lose about $400,000 to state and federal taxes and be left with 600000 This company, ESOP-owned S Corporation, makes a million dollars. It keeps the whole million. So that's the final piece of that five-year plan. So it's a pretty nice way for the company to end up. So there is a Santa Claus. It is. It's just the magic, yeah. And <laughs> okay. part of the reason I think why these companies can, uh, you know, survive downturns and all that kind of stuff. And these companies are now they're making acquisitions. They're growing. They use some of this extra money to uh, acquire the companies. These are very healthy, robust companies, as you can imagine, with all that extra cash. Now, obviously, if someone was an existing S corp and they sold fifty percent, uh, they would get to the same place, except they would have not been able to defer those taxes on the initial sale. Correct. Right. That's the only difference is you don't qualify to defer those taxes if you stay S corporation. You do get a little offsetting, a little benefit, and that is, amazingly enough, uh, if you stay, if you don't claim that tax deferral, then you can sell your stock, whether it's 50%, 100%, whatever you're selling, you sell to it, and you get fully paid for every last share. But as soon as the sale is done, you take off your owner hat, you put on your employee hat and say, hey, I work here too. And I get a W-2 like everybody else, and the stock is now going to be divvied up to every employee who receives a W-2, including you, the owner. So stock right. that you were paid for, you get a batch of it back. And, in fact, the stock is generally allocated to employees in proportion to their pay level. So the more you're paid, the more shares you get. And so you're Mr. Owner. You're probably the highest paid guy in the company. You get more shares than anybody else back. Uh, now, you can't get that if you're claiming that, that deferral arrangement. So – that's one of the trade-offs, and so uh, you get to sort of pick, do I want the tax deferral or do I want to stay S and be able to get a bunch of bunch of my shares back in my own ESOP account? Got it. Okay. Okay. So yeah. the, there's, there's obviously some important considerations, a lot of pre-planning. Uh, the first step is to become educated and talk to someone who specializes in these types of plans. So, uh, and, and that's what you do. 
right? Exactly. That's where we, we will take somebody through the whole process from just beginning to understand and explore the ESOP thing all the way through the actual implementation. And, of course, being based at the university, we really excel at educating and explaining and, and uh, really helping people to understand this. Uh, so that we, I think we are the place to come to learn more about this. And if what you're learning seems like this makes sense, we can take a, through a continuing exploration process, really get down to nitty-gritty, start looking at specific numbers at your company, and we can map out. Uh, uh, we actually use a modeling process to show you exactly how a particular ESOP transaction would play out in your company and how it would impact your income statement, how it would impact your cash flow, an estimate of the price you'd get, how it, what the employees would see from it, and enable you to see a whole picture of what it would look like. And that helps you know, owners to be able to make an, a really well-informed final decision. Do I actually want to do this or not? Okay, so you're the first. It sounds like you're. You know, there's. At some point, you'd probably have an attorney involved. You're going to have a valuation person involved. You're going to have investment advisors and all that involved, uh, and your tax advisor, of course. It's a team approach. Um, exactly. Are you the first call? Yes, we're the first call. As I say, we would help you fully understand this, and then if it makes sense, we would then lead the process of putting the team together, so we could recommend. You know, appropriate attorneys that are good for this and recommend valuation firms and the other players involved in the process and really, as I say, lead you through the whole process. So much great information. Martin Stabas from the Beister Institute, UC San Diego. How do people get in touch with you best and learn more about what you do? Easiest way is just simply to Google Beister Institute. So Beister is B-E-Y-S-T-E-R. B-E-Y-S-T-E-R Institute. You Google that and we'll come up. Beister Institute, you'll see it there at the Rady School of Management at UC San Diego, and that'll get you to our website. Uh, you can also find me on LinkedIn uh, through my name, uh, and you can always reach me at mstabas at ucsd.edu is the email. Okay, and uh, I know that you're also a member of a group called Provisors that's a well-networked group of professionals, so you have access to to top advisors in all areas, like you can recommend valuation people, I would imagine, and uh, attorneys that would be familiar with this if people don't have those types of resources? Exactly. That's great. Really great information. I'm glad uh, we extended our interview a little bit today. It's a little bit longer than our usual format, but I think it was necessary because this is a, com this is a, a concept, a strategy that a lot of people are thinking about, but they're, they don't know where to go to get good advice about it. Simple questions like I was asking and, and the great uh, explanations that Martin provided. Martin, thanks so much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure. My pleasure as well. Thanks, Bill. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Uh, I'll talk to you again real soon. All right. Take care. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back after this, so please stay with us. Hi, everybody. This is Spike Real for The Exit Coach. Business owners, can you name the eight key value drivers that you and your managers should be focusing on to increase the value of your business? Introducing the Sellability Score Index. Visit our website and answer 25 questions about your business, and you will instantly receive your sellability score, showing you how well you stack up in the eight value driver areas. It's a great management tool. It's absolutely free for our listeners. Just visit ExitCoachRadio.com and click Get My Sellability Score. Does thinking about what will happen to your business if you're gone keep you awake at night? Will you get the price you need from your business to carry you through retirement? The BEI Network of Exit Planning Professionals is the world's leading advisor network with the power to help business owners transition out of business on their own timeline and terms. 
Ask your most trusted advisor to create a BEI plan for you or visit us at ExitPlanning.com. That's ExitPlanning.com. Thank you for listening to Exit Coach Radio. Welcome 